Well, you can turn over in your Bibles to Romans, Romans chapter 7. Been working our way through the book of Romans rather slowly, I guess. In 1973, there was a uh, psychiatrist by the name of Carl Menninger. Probably heard of the Menninger Clinic. And uh, he wrote a a best-selling title. And the title was, Whatever Became of Sin? Um, That title just stuck out to me, especially coming from somebody who's in the, the work as a psychiatrist. I don't know if he was a Christian or who he was exactly, probably not. But I think this man realized some 40 years ago, it's hard to believe, um, that the concept of sin was really vanishing from our society. The idea that you call sin, sin. Um, He argued... In his book, he said, In the lifetimes of many of us, sin has been redefined, first as a crime, that is, as transgression of the law of man rather than transgression of the law of God, and second, as symptoms. Since symptoms are caused by things external to the individual, they are seen as effects for which the offender is not responsible. Thus it happened that sin against God has been redefined and dismissed as the unfortunate effects of bad circumstances, and no one is to blame. We see that just run amok big time in our society today. Uh, We view today in our society many of the behaviors that the Bible tells us are sins before a holy God, And basically, we look at them as psychological issues or emotional issues. And people look not for repentance of those things, but they look for therapy as a solution. Um, One poll said that even among evangelical Christians, many do not believe that premarital sex or even homosexual behavior is a sin. Um, there's a lot of churches that you can look up and they have certain classes and they call them anger management classes. But you don't see any anger repentance class. <laughs> see, that, that's kind of what happens. You know, we have all these resources to help us overcome our, quote, addictions. But we don't have anything to really show us the way to get away from these sins. And sin has become a disease that we treat therapeutically, not a behavior for which we're responsible. And so when you stop and you think of this, Christians who regularly watch a lot of different um, uh, social media, things like that, you're, you're obviously going to be exposed to a lot of this stuff from the world. And we've dumbed ourselves down to think that, you know what, this doesn't matter anymore. There was a time, I was telling my grandson the other day, there was a time on TV where it was against the law to show any scene in a bathroom. Didn't matter what it was. (laughs) It was just against the law. It wasn't appropriate. And now, (laughs) you don't even want to go there. 
Um, so Paul has been showing us, he's been teaching us, that if you try to gain a right standing with God by keeping the law, you're doomed to fail. The law wasn't given, as we've learned, to make us right with God. He didn't give it to us so that we could keep it. He knew we wouldn't be able to keep it. To the contrary, Romans 3.20 says this, Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. In, in Romans 4.15 it says, The law brings about wrath. In 5.20 it says, The law came in so that the transgression would increase. And so, here in our text... In chapter 7, Romans 4 says that through our union with Christ, we died to the law in order that we might bear fruit for God. Got to get out of that squeaky area of the floor back there. It's driving me nuts. Squeaky board down every time I move. Um, So we've been released from the law in order to... Verse 6 says of chapter 7 that we serve in the newness of the Spirit, not in the oldness of the letter of the law. And so Paul was answering his critics, and they were accusing him of saying that the law was sin. Because he constantly kind of seems like he's beaten up on the law, beaten up on the law, and he knew what they were thinking. And so he says, is the law sin? He says in verse 7, may it never be. In other words, there's no way. The law came from God. And so we're going to look at that law today. The problem is not with the law of God. The problem is with our sin and with who we are. And so when you mix God's holy law with our sin, it produces negative results. Kind of like if you were to go into a classroom and take some chemicals that shouldn't be mixed together and you mix them together, what's going to happen? It's going to explode. I remember in high school we had a chemistry class and one of the kids did that it didn't explode but boy it made a big racket and stuff was boiling all over the place and we actually had to evacuate the room because it was giving off these toxic smell these fumes and so in verses 11 and 12 paul wraps up this argument that law is not the problem but rather sin is the problem now in the last couple weeks we've looked at a couple things first of all we saw that the law was not sin But it does reveal our sin. God gave us the law of God so that we could see the sin in our own life. So when you read a rule or you see a law, that shows you you have to keep that law. And when you realize you can't keep that law, that's sin. And so the law is not sin, but it does reveal our sin. And then secondly, we looked at, in way of review, the law provokes sinners to sin. And that's just kind of in our genes. You know, you see a, a, a sign that says, don't walk on the grass. What do you want to do? Walk on the grass. You see a sign that says, don't kick the dog. What do you want to do? You want to kick the, well, maybe not kick the dog, but you know what I'm saying. Should have made it a cat. But anyway, just kidding. I'm sorry, sorry for you cat lovers. Highly allergic to cats. Cats and I don't get along. But the idea is that sign provokes you to do something you're not supposed to do. And that God's law provokes sinners to sin. We saw that in verse 8. And then in verses 9 to 11, we saw that the law, through our failures to keep it, brings us to the end of ourselves. In other words, we are unable to keep God's law. There's no other way that we can gain righteousness. Jesus said, if you want to be in the kingdom one day, how, how good do you have to be? You have to be perfect as my Father's perfect. 
And you, you walk away from that and you just go, well, there's no way I'll ever be perfect. Ever. And God says, exactly my point. <laughs> That's why I gave you the law, to show you how imperfect you are. Now, I want to kind of just take a little introductory course here through the Ten Commandments quickly. Because I think it's important that we review what God's law is before we get into talking about how good it is. And so James Boyce in his commentary, he lists these commandments and he offers various thoughts on each one. He says the first commandment, the, the commandment begins where we might expect it to begin in the area of our relationship with God. And it says in Exodus chapter 20, you can turn there if you want. It's up on the screen, I think. Verses two to three, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. What does this commandment require? It requires us to worship the true God and to worship him only. You, you can't worship whoever you want. You can't make up God in your own mind. Sometimes when you're out sharing the gospel with somebody and you say, look, do you want to be under the wrath of God? You have to repent of your sins. A lot of times people will say to you, oh, my God's not wrathful. I believe in an all-loving God. He would never send anybody to hell. What are they doing? They're recreating God in their own mind to ease their own conscience. You don't find that kind of God in the Bible. Is God loving? Yes. That's why he gave us the law, to show us our sin and then to provide Christ as a way out of that sin. Um, This requirement requires us to worship God, the true God, and only him. That's why it's so important when you talk about different religions, world religions. Well, don't you think if, if well-meaning Muslims are, are well-meaning and they're, they're sincere, don't you think they'll go to heaven? No. They're worshiping the untrue God. They're not worshiping the God of the Bible. And you could put that behind any world religion that doesn't worship the God of the Bible. John Stott said this, It is not necessary to worship the Son the moon, and the stars to break this law. We break it whenever we give to something or someone other than God himself the first place in our thoughts and our affections. It may be some engrossing sport, absorbing hobby, or self-ambition. Or it may be someone whom we idolize. We may worship a god of gold and silver, in the form of safe investments and a healthy bank balance, or a God of wood and stone in the form of property and possessions. Sin is fundamentally the exaltation of self at the expense of God. So just because you're not bowing down to some idol when you go home and burning incense to it or some weird thing, don't think, oh, that doesn't apply to me. Because there's a lot of things, beloved, that come in between our relationship between us and God. And so he says, I want you to understand that you need to worship me, the true God. Um, Someone wrote of the Englishman, he is a self-made man who worships his creator. He is a self-made man who worships his creator. See, to keep this first commandment perfectly, which is the only way to keep this or any of the commandments as Jesus taught, you have to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven. It means giving him first place in everything. It means in all of our loves, in all of our goals, in all of our actions, God is number one. 
Doesn't mean we can't enjoy other things. But as soon as those things take precedent over God, we got a problem. It means that we use all that we are and all that we have to serve Him. No one has ever kept that commandment perfectly except Christ. The second commandment was this. The first commandment dealt with the object of our worship, forbidding the worship of any false deity. The second commandment deals with the nature of our worship, forbidding us to worship even the true God in an unworthy manner. Look at what it says. Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 and 6. And he goes into this at length. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or in earth below or in the, or beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but loving, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. What's it mean? It means it's a condemnation of any kind of idol worship. But not just that. I mean, obviously, he's forbidding us to worship things of gold or things like that. That's, that's clear. But you know what it really concerns? It concerns the worship of God by any and all inadequate means. That's what it means. One inadequate means, one idol is the, the mental images of God we carry about in our heads. What do you think of when you think of God? J.B. Phillips wrote a little book calling the title of it, Your God is Too Small. And in that little book, he spoke of inadequate images that we have as Christians in our heads of God. And he he used each chapter as a title of those inadequate images. They were this. One was resident policeman. Parental hangover. Grand old man. Meek and mild. Absolute perfection. Heavenly bosom, God in a box, managing director, perennial grievance, pale Galean, and so forth. He goes through all these different, different titles. See, we all at times have inadequate ideas about who God is, even though we may know him. That's one thing that troubles a lot of Christians. A lot of Christians have issues in doubting their own faith. And sometimes when they do that, and they, they want counsel on that, I'll say, how much do you know about the God that saved you? Can you list any of his attributes? Tell me about, tell me about some of those. That God is holy, God is just, and go, go through the list of them. A lot of times they can't do that. You know, maybe they say, well, God is forgiving and God is love, and then they kind of struggle a little bit. See, the more you know about God, the stronger your faith is going to be because you're going to be able to respond to him in the proper way. And so we got to get rid of these inadequate images of God. The second way we worship God unworthily is by going through the forms of worship without engaging our hearts or minds in our devotion. You're just going through the motions. You're singing the words on the screen. Don't, can't even tell you what we sang this morning, but you know what? I just kind of went through the motions. We, we go to church, but our minds are somewhere else. What time's the Warrior game, by the way? It's tonight, right? Okay, we're going. So, you know, that's how it works. And our mind goes off. You know, what are we having for lunch? What are we doing this? What are, you know, do we get all this stuff done for VBS? What's, you know, coming up after church? 
and, and, we, and our mind just drifts. Um, and, we, and we pray, we pray, but our, our, our heads are bowed down. But you know what? Our hearts are not. We're just going through the motions. And see, we need to realize that that is something that's an affront to God. When we come together, especially as the body of Christ, to worship him, I pray that you engage your heart and you engage your mind in our worship. That you're not just kind of sitting there just going, oh, whatever, I don't even know what happened. That you're engaged. I love it when sometimes people after the service will come up and say, you know what, you said this in your message. What did you mean by that? And where can you show me in the Bible? Because sometimes I'll say something that, frankly, I don't know where it comes from. It just kind of, you know, okay, well, you mix that one up. You know, sometimes my wife will say, you know, you said this. Did you know that there's no eighth chapter in Ephesians? Like, well, yeah. Well, then you said, turn to Ephesians chapter eight. I did, you know. And so sometimes if you're just checked out, boy, I could get up here and Mary had a little lamb. His fleece was white as snow, you know. And at the door, you're going, man, wonderful, wonderful sermon there, pastor. That was great. And I'm thinking, whoa, what, what happened? See, we need to engage with our heart and with our mind. The third commandment is this. Exodus 27, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. And this isn't just talking about swearing. <laughs> this isn't just talking about using wrong language. You know, sometimes we even will say, oh my gosh! Instead of, oh my God. Because we know, oh my God, probably, probably wouldn't be good, depending on how you're using it. But, oh my gosh, well, that gives it a pass. It's kind of silly how we think of things like that. And you can get caught up in all that. But the commandment here is broken when we confess Jesus to be Lord, but we do not follow him as Lord. To bring it real life today. The commandment is broken when we call him Father, we call God Father, but we do not trust him as the loving parent that he is. When we call the Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit, and yet we think of him as just some kind of power source that we just plug into occasionally. Great Puritan pastor Thomas Watson wrote this. He said, we take God's name in vain, and he listed it. He said, when we speak slightly and irreverently, irreverently about his name, when we profess God's name, but we do not live answerably to it, when we use God's name in idle discourse, when we worship him with our lips, but not with our hearts, when we pray to him, but we do not believe in him, when in any way we profane and abuse his word, when we swear by God's name, when we prefix God's name to any wicked action, when we use our tongues any way to the dishonor of God's name, when we make rash, unlawful vows, when we speak evil of God, and when we false, falsify our promise. I mean, some people may take such ways of dishonoring God's name lightly, but God does not. God says he takes the third commandment very seriously. He says there in the commandment he will not hold anyone guiltless. So you don't get a pass. Fourth commandment. Tells us there, talks about the Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath? It's 
one of the longest elaborations on a, on a commandment, the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your maidservant, or your maid, uh, uh, manservant, or your maidservant, nor your animals, nor the aliens within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that it is in, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. That's Exodus 2, 8 to 11. Now those verses, as I said, contain the longest explanation of any of the Ten Commandments. And there's a lot of differences when people read that and say, oh, it means this, it means that. Some insist that They require Christians to worship on Saturday, the Seventh-day Adventists, for example. They say, oh, you have to to worship on the the seventh day, which is Saturday. That's why they're called Seventh-day Adventists. And they go by a lot of other things that are in the law. There's other Christians who believe that they worship on Sunday, the Lord's Day, but you can't do anything else but worship. So if you go home and watch TV, well, that's breaking the Sabbath. Some people believe that. Or you go to the store, you do this. We used to live in a country where on Sundays everything was closed. In some parts of the the country, it's still true. (laughs) Down in the Bible Belt, some some areas, there's some retail shops. Don't ever try to go to Chick-fil-A on a Sunday because you're closed. Why? They're making a statement. Okay? Right, wrong, and different, they're making a statement. This is is something we're going to honor. Now, I think the New Testament supports the idea of the Lord's Day. That's what we do. We meet on the first day of the week. That's what the Bible tells us to do, the day of the resurrection of Christ. It's a new day that's given for God, for worship and joyful service. And we're, we've given a, a lot of grace in this area. You know, should you be working 24-7? Well, you can. You're probably going to burn yourself out. There's a reason why God gave us a model that you need to rest. You need to take time. Your body's not meant to operate that way. And you see people. You see men who are driven, and, and you, know, you see the effects on their family and their marriages. Why? Because they're working 24-7. They don't know how to say, I'm not going to go in today, or I'm not going to do this, or I'm not going to do that. I love it sometimes when I'll, I'll send certain individuals an email. And you get an immediate response, and it says, I'm sorry, I'm out of the office right now. You know, I'll be back at such and such and such. And you know they're either on vacation or they're whatever. And I'm thinking that, that, that shows that, you know what, they understand boundaries. They understand that, you know what, this is not going to infringe on my time with my family or my vacation or whatever it might be. When you stop and you think about it, do we keep the Lord's Day even as holy? Or do we just use it for our own purposes? Fifth commandment, when we pass from the fourth to the fifth, we also pass from the first table of the law, which concerns our relationships to God, to the second table of the law, Boyce says, which concerns our relationships to other people. And he says in verse 12, Honor your father and mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. This has to do with what? Human authority. This has to do with who God's put over you. Your parents is the first human authority that God has set over us. 
other authorities, all with different and various restrictive powers, all these kind of things, including the state, the leaders of the church, and the employers. All those things. To fulfill this command, you'd have to do what Paul says further in Romans when he says in Romans 13, 7, give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. We're to honor our parents. See, when we rebel against authority, even beginning in the home, when we say, you know what, I don't like what mom and dad say, I'm going to do my own thing, that's sin. That's breaking. That's not honoring God. That's not honoring your parents. So we need to be aware of that. Sixth commandment, real quick, you shall not murder. We don't need a whole lot of explanation there. You should not murder. Okay. Um, Jesus explained the command by showing that it concerns more than just taking another person's life, as Jesus always did. Matter of fact, in Matthew 5, verse 22, he says, I tell you that anyone who is, listen to this, angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. See, the commandment searches the depth of who we are. And if we're honest with ourselves, we're often very angry at at folks or situations, and sometimes, you know, we need to be corrected. Is there such a thing as righteous anger? Yes, there is. But I would say probably most of our anger is unrighteous anger. (laughs) You know. um, Our anger is instead generously aroused, generally aroused, by some real or imagined slight offense against ourselves, and we get angry at it. Do we commit murder? I hope not. But you know what? By definition, we can murder by neglect, we can murder with spite, we can murder with gossip, slander. There's a lot of different ways you can murder. Thomas Watson, himself a preacher, said this, ministers are murderers. If they starve, poison, or infect souls. Seventh commandment, Exodus twenty fourteen. He says there, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not commit adultery. Jesus commented on this commandment in Matthew five twenty seven to 28. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. And he was saying this to people that outwardly didn't. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Um, John Stott wrote on this commandment, <clears throat> this includes flirting, experimenting, other things. It also includes all the other perversions that go along with that. It includes selfish demands within wedlock. Many, if not all, divorces. It includes the deliberate reading of inappropriate, inappropriate literature. The commandment embraces every abuse of a sacred and beautiful gift of God. So we need to be understanding that our marriages are to be honoring to the Lord. The eighth commandment, <clears throat> there in Exodus twenty fifteen, you shall not steal. I mean, this is kind of a universal commandment across the human race. 
It's found in almost every culture. Uh, But it's only biblical religion that explains why it is wrong to steal. In addition to the obvious fact that theft is socially disruptive and inconvenient, the real reason it is wrong to steal is that what the other person possesses has been given to him or her by God. James 1.17 says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights. So if you take anything from one to whom it is given, it's a sin not only against them, but it's a sin against God because God gave it to them. We need to think about that. You do that, we do that in many ways. We steal directly from God when we neglect to give him the worship, honor, thanksgiving, and obedience that he deserves. There's also a positive side to this command. Over in Ephesians, Paul says, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28, he who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. According to Paul, what he's saying is the Eighth Commandment remained unfulfilled until the offender began to help others who were in need. The Ninth Commandment, Verse 16, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. It's a warning against perjury. But it's also more than that. It condemns all slander, idle talk, gossip, unkind rumors, jokes at another person's expense, lies, deliberate exaggerations or distortions of the truth. It concerns even listening to such unkind things uncritically. And then the 10th commandment, Verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Covetousness is really the root of sin when you stop and think about it. Um, Watson says this, when it is exercised fully, it causes a breach of each of the other commandments. That's why Jesus, that's why Paul related to it here in uh, the book of Romans. And so you have to stop and you have to ask yourself, okay, this is God's <clears throat> law that we're looking at. Uh, what, what do we do here? The question was, is the law sin? And he answers it in verse 7. He says, certainly not. But then down in verse 13, he says, ask the same question. Did that which is good then become death to me? And he says, by no means, but in order, verse 13, that sin might be recognized as sin, it produced death in me through what was good so that through the commandment, sin might be utterly sinful. And so we see here in the text, verse 11 to 13, he says, for sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, And through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. God's law reveals the holiness of his commandments. And it also reveals the utter sinfulness of our sin. 
The first point there in your outline is God's law reveals the holiness of his commandment. Look at what he says in verse 12. So then the law is holy, the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. He, he could mean here the law as a whole. He could be referring to the commandment of, of, of covetousness there that he mentions. Either way, he's talking about God's commands. And he says there that the, <clears throat> every single part of it <clears throat> is holy, righteous, and good. And so he kind of emphasizes his point by really piling up these terms. And so he's, first of all, he says, God's law is holy. Now, we all know what holiness is, right? Holiness is to be separate, to be called out. Uh, It's it's without um, flaw. It's the opposite of sin. God's holiness means that he is altogether separate from us. He's not just one of the boys. He's not the man upstairs. He's separate. He's totally holy. And Ephesians 5, 27, Christ's aim for his church says that she would, the church would be, we would be holy and without blame or blameless. And so God's holy commandments show us how to live in a separate way from this evil world. See, the problem with the church today is that they figured out that they can come to church on Sunday and then flirt with the world the rest of the week. And then just come back to church on Sunday. That doesn't work. That's not being holy. That's not being the light of the world. That's not being the salt of the earth. And so he says God's law is holy. Secondly, he says God's law is righteous, which means that it's right. Okay, it's just. God himself is the standard of what is right. No one else sets the standard but God and God alone. And so when God says something, it is always right. There's there's no, God can never be wrong. So when God, for your life, has a plan and a purpose, and you're fighting against it, and you're saying, I don't want to do this, God, what are you doing? You're fighting against what is right. You're fighting against what God wants for you. And we shouldn't do that because we don't know better than God. He's our creator. If we violate God's moral commands, we are wrong because God is always right. His standards are not relative. His law is not relative. His law doesn't change with the culture or with the time. You can't bend God. You can't say, well, you know, this seems kind of old-fashioned. Lord, I think, you know, maybe we need to kind of change some things. No. God is the same. Jesus Christ is the same, what, yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't bend the culture. It doesn't matter whether the, the, the culture thinks he's relevant or not. Who cares? That's, that's irrelevant. <laughs> God's commandments are always good because they come from a God who cannot be anything but good. See, when you believe that about God, and you believe that God is just, and you begin to understand that, and then when something crazy happens in your life, what are you doing when you shake your fist at God and say, why did you allow this to happen? No, there's a purpose. There's a reason why God has allowed that to happen. And it's good that he allowed it to happen, even though what happened may have been bad. It may have been hurtful. We have to put it in perspective. God is the final standard of what 
is good. God's law, secondly, reveals the utter sinfulness of sin. It reveals the utter sinfulness of sin. God's law is holy. God's law is righteous. God's laws are good. But he gives us his law to reveal the utter sinfulness of sin. That's what he says there in verse 13. So that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. C.H. Spurgeon said this, The law was not the cure of the disease, much less the creator of it, but it was the revealer of the disease that lurked in the constitution of man. He goes on to show that when Paul wanted to come up with a word on how to describe how bad sin is, he didn't call it exceedingly black or horrible or deadly. Rather, he wanted to find the very worst word to describe it that he knew. He called sin by its own name. <laughs> he said, is it, it, it's exceedingly sinful. There's nothing as evil as sin. <clears throat> God gave his law for our good to show our sin to us so that we could realize that we need an <clears throat> answer for this sin. And that's when Christ comes in and dies on the cross and we can put our faith and our hope in Christ and he can save us from our own sin. God gave us his law for, thank you, God gave us his law for our good. Not to keep it, but to show us our own sinful. Sin is utterly sinful because it is rebellion against our loving and heavenly Father. That's what we do when we sin. Think of Genesis. When God gave Adam and Eve the command not to eat of the fruit of the tree, the knowledge of good and evil, that command was what? For their good. That command wasn't given just to say, I'm going to mess with them a little bit. No, he wanted to keep them from the consequences of what? Death. You know, when parents tell their children, you know, it might be best you don't go out and play there on the freeway with the the little rubber bouncing ball. It might not be a good thing. It might not turn out well for you if you do that. You know, you could say, you could argue, well, man, what a cruel parent. They're just depriving their children of of having fun in the freeway with the, the red ball, with all the trucks and the cars and the buses. No. Why are they saying that? They're saying that to protect them from death. So when we sin, we rebel against the God who is loving and kind toward us. He's never mean. He's never harsh. He's never cruel. Rather, sin, as Spurgeon put it in another sermon, is the monster that this verse drags into the light. See, we have to see sin for what it is. It's not an addiction. It's not a behavioral problem. It's sin. It's rebellion against a holy God. B there, sin is utterly sinful because it takes a good thing and uses it to kill us. Sin takes the good law of God, and it turns it into an instrument of death. You know, I guess if you were going to use an example, it would be like someone taking a scalpel, very sharp knife that's used by surgeons in the operating room to take out 
things that shouldn't belong in your body, and they do it very effectively. They're very sharp instruments. But if you took that scalpel and you just decided to cut your neighbor up, okay, that's a bad thing. You're taking a good thing, but you're using it for an evil purpose, a bad purpose. It's a useful tool in the hands of a skilled physician. See, the sinner who used the scalpel to murder someone is the, is the culprit. You don't blame the scalpel. You don't say, oh, that bad scalpel. How could he do that? No. Sin takes God's holy commandments and he uses, and, and he uses them to kill us. Paul mentions their death killed in verses 9, 10, 11, 13. He means that the law brings us under God's righteous, eternal condemnation because we've deliberately violated his law over and over and over again. So we should fight against our own sin in in much effort, just like we would struggle against somebody who broke into our house and wanted to steal everything or murder us. We would fight against them. We wouldn't just lay down and go, okay, go ahead, stab me. No. Third thing, sin is utterly sinful because it involves deliberate violation of God's good and perfect will for us. Do you know that God has a good and perfect will for you? As his children? And by the way, God doesn't play hide-and-go-seek. It's not like God said, oh, you know what, I got this good and perfect will for you, my children, dear Christian, but you know what, I'm going to have to make you look for it. I'm going to have to make you beg for it. I'm going to hide it in places you'll never begin to look. I mean, that'd be a sick God if he did that. He doesn't do that. So people come all the time and they say, well, how do I know if I'm doing God's will? First of all, you get your nose in the book and you find out what God's will is. You know, you, you don't even need to pray about this, okay? You go to the Bible and you start to learn what the will of the Lord is. What the Bible has told you to do. Well, what has he told us to do? He told us to pray. Told us to read the word, meditate upon it. Told us to fellowship with the saints. Tells us to serve one another and others. You go on and on and you can find certain things that says this is God's will for you. And you do those things. Probably less than 10, actually. If you do all those things and you're doing those things, and then you come to me and you say, well, I don't know what to do. Do whatever you want. You can do whatever you want if you're doing these things that God has already told you to do. Because if you're doing those things, you're not going to violate those things. So you're not going to want to do something that would violate what you're already doing. That would be ridiculous. So if you want to know what God's will is, get your nose in the Bible and see it right on the written page. Where there is no law, there is no violation of the law. You can't break a law that doesn't exist. See, our conscience, when we do something wrong, our conscience nags us. Our conscience says, hey, you know, you shouldn't be doing that. You shouldn't be doing that. Why? Because we know that it goes against God's word somewhere. Fourth thing here, sin is utterly sinful because it uses deception to kill us. And we'll close with this. Sin is so deceptive. 
Sin doesn't come into your life and go, you know what, I'm just going to make your life a wreck and misery and you're just going to, you know, hate it. No. It doesn't do that. It's deceptive. You've all probably seen the movie or read the book, Peace Child, where Don Richardson is a missionary and he talks about this group, the Sawi tribe, that he brought the gospel to. And they had this practice that they would basically deceive the people that came to them, whether it's another tribe or whether it's a visitor, whoever. And they were expert at it. They, they excelled in deception. They actually looked at deception as a virtue. The better you deceive somebody, the higher you are in their, their eyes. And so they would lure an outsider into their midst as a friend. And they didn't know any better. They didn't expect any of this. And they would treat him as a king. They'd feed him well. They'd honor him. Little did they know that, did he know that they were literally fattening him up for the slaughter. And sometimes this process would go on for a couple years. And they would live amongst the tribe thinking, boy, it's incredible. These people are such a blessing to me. And then would come a day when they would all gather around that individual. And they would literally kill him and eat him. Crazy. But this person never knew it was coming. As a matter of fact, when Richardson was explaining the gospel to them and he was telling the story about Jesus and he told them about Judas who betrayed Jesus, man, they put this guy on a pedestal. They wanted to worship Judas, not Jesus. That's where their minds were. See, in that same way, that's how sin is utterly sinful because it deceives us. Paul uses the same verb to describe the serpent's deception of Eve in the garden. First, he distorted and misrepresented God's commandment by drawing attention only to the negative part of it and ignoring the positive. Second, he made her believe, Eve to believe, that God would not punish disobedience with death. And then he finally, thirdly, said the very commandment itself is to insinuate doubts about God's goodwill and to suggest the possibility that she and Adam could assert themselves in opposition to God. One pastor came up with 15 ways that sin deceives us. And I'm just going to read through them and then we'll close in prayer. Sin deceives us into thinking that outward obedience alone pleases God, whereas we need to please him on the heart level. See, that was the downfall of the Pharisees, wasn't it? They thought, hey, if I'm doing all this stuff out here, who, who cares about my heart? And Jesus turned it right around on him. He said, no, you got it all backwards. Secondly, sometimes sin changes its tactics and tells us that everything is hopeless so that we might as well keep on sinning. You just got to get discouraged. You say, well, I failed together. I failed again with this sin. I guess there's no hope. I'll just continue to do it. Sin deceives us to presume on God's grace. Hey, I know Christ died for my sins. I know all my sins are forgiven. So if I have a little sin in my life, it doesn't really matter. It's all forgiven. Fourthly, sin deceives us into thinking that it will bring true and lasting happiness while holiness will bring us misery. 
I mean, if you just think of the word holiness, you know, it's just, I don't know. It doesn't sound as fun as sin. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? I mean, it just doesn't. So sin deceives us that way. Fifthly, sin deceives us into thinking that we have a right to happiness while we forget that we have a responsibility to holiness. We don't have a right to happiness. Where do you see that? Where do you see Jesus saying, yeah, you know what? After you're done dying to yourself and taking up that cross as an instrument of death, follow me and just be happy. Where do you see that in the Bible? I I see just the opposite. I see him telling his followers, you know what? They mistreated me. Wait till they get their hands on you. (laughs) Okay, you better be ready for it. You're going to have to suffer. We don't want to hear that. Sin deceives us by, sixthly, by getting us to discount the consequences of willful disobedience. Satan lied to Eve. Surely you won't die. God won't really allow that to happen. So you sin a little bit. Seventhly, sin deceives us into thinking that we've earned some free pass to sin because of all that we've done to serve God. You ever thought that? I'll be honest, I've thought that at times. You know what, I'm serving, I'm sorry. Okay, you know, I I blew it in this area. I'm sure God understands, let's move on. Well, no, it's not that easy. Eighthly, Sin deceives us by getting us to swap the labels and call it something much more acceptable. Think about it. In our own culture, it's not called adultery. It's called an affair or a fling. It's not perversion. It's gay. It's not stealing. It's just taking what the company owes you anyway. They're just not giving it to you. I'm not angry. I just got a short fuse. It's not gossip. I I just want to share this prayer request with you. I mean, you know, we all go there at times. Let's just be honest. The ninth thing here, sin deceives us by making us think that we're normal when we sin. And to think that holy people are weird. I mean, that's what it does. You know, how many times has has someone come to you and, and maybe confessed something to you? And what's our first reaction? Hey, brother, I understand, man. It's, it's normal. <laughs> I've been there myself. You know, we're, I mean, maybe with good motives, we're trying to encourage him, but what are we doing? We're, we're making an excuse here. We're making it look normal. See, as a believer, if sin is normal in their life, there's something wrong. Right? You've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. All things, old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. God gives you new desires, new wants. You shouldn't be the same person you were when you were unsaved. If that's the case, maybe you're not saved. Maybe you need to go back to the Savior and say, Hey, you know what? Be merciful to me, a sinner. Help me. Tenth thing, sin deceives us by working by degrees so that eventually that which would have shocked us is now accepted as normal. Boy, the culture really did get one over on us with this. I mean, how many times can you go to the movies and you're sitting there even watching the previews of the movies to come? And you hear things and you see things that if I were to put up here on this screen right now, you'd probably run out of the building. 
I can't believe he showed that in church. But you'll go down there and pay 12, 15 bucks to watch it on a screen. Go figure. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. We have to be careful. But it happens in degrees. You know, when I was over there painting the fellowship hall a couple of months ago or whatever, I was in there and painting, painting, and, and somebody came in, one of the ladies came in or whatever to fix the kitchen up for Sunday. He said, oh, boy, it stinks in here. Like, what do you mean it stinks in here? I don't smell anything. <laughs> oh, you don't smell that toxic paint fume smell? No. I've been in here for three days. I don't smell anything. You know, I mean, that's kind of how I felt. Oh, turn the fan on. This, this probably isn't good. You know, um, see, that's how sin is. It creeps in. And pretty soon you kind of get used to it. And you kind of think, well, you know, whatever. Pretty soon you don't even notice it anymore. Have you ever seen somebody's hair radically change? Like they had black hair, and the next time you saw them, they had white hair. It's happened to people. But usually it doesn't happen that way. Usually, or if somebody's losing their hair, you know, it's not like, you know, it's just this, you know, immediate thing. I shave my head. I'm not bald. I shave my head because I don't want to see the gradual process continue. Looked at myself in a wedding video one time, and I said, who is, that's me? Oh, my goodness, I have no hair up there. I had it right here, so I just uh, shaved the whole thing, get it over with. But it, it works incrementally. Sin deceives us by making us angry, 11th, at the law, feeling that God is against us when he prohibits something. And we answer the question, we ask the question, does he expect me to be perfect? How can I do this? Why doesn't he give me a break? Hello, I think he has the cross. Jesus died for your sin. Twelve, sin deceives us by making us think very highly of ourselves. You know, you can figure out what's best for you. A lot of times, Christians end up putting themselves under legalistic standards. And they kind of think of themselves, oh, look at what I'm doing. Look at what, how I live my life. Look at this. You should be doing this. Thirteen, sin tells us that the law is oppressive, keeping us from developing the gifts and talents that we have within us. God's law is just keeping us down. Fourteen, sin makes righteousness look drab and unattractive. I remember someone talking to me one, one time. And I was telling them that I've only had relations with my wife. And they thought that was so boring. You mean you never? No. Really? No. I, I'm not saying that, you know. But, I, but I, what I'm saying is, is that that's how the world thinks. You know. You go to church every Sunday? Every Sunday you go there? Man, that's, what, what if you want to do something else? See, they, they build it up as this restrictive thing. What a way to mess up, mess up your weekend. See? So it makes 
Righteousness looked drab and unattractive. And then the last thing, sin deceives us by getting us to compare ourselves with other sinners rather than to compare ourselves with God's holy standard. You know, well, I'm not as bad as the guy across the street. I'm not as bad as the, the guy at the grocery store or, or brother or sister or whoever you're comparing yourself with. That's not who we need to be comparing ourselves with. We compare ourselves with God, who is perfect. And what does that do? The practical result, the last point of understanding the holiness of God's command is that the utter sinfulness of sin causes us and should cause us to hate our own sin even more. It should drive us to our knees. Psalm 97.10 says, Hate evil, you who love the Lord. Matthew 7.5, we're not supposed to hate the evil in others. We need to hate our own sin first. That's what Jesus said. Take the log out of your own eye, right? So do you hate your own sin? Do you hate it enough to stop making excuses for it? Do you hate it enough to give it serious thought and effort how not to do it? Because sin is ugly. To watch a believer fall into sin is is like watching a dog going back to its own vomit. 2 Peter 2.22. So love the word, read it, memorize it. Don't let sin kill you. 